All right. Uh, we are continuing. We have two weeks after this in our series of encountering Jesus. We are into the post-resurrection. We looked last week at the cross. Uh, the, the gospel writers, we have just a very small amount left in the gospels, do not spend a lot of time discussing the post-resurrection Jesus. There's just not a lot in there. Uh, some of the gospels almost seemingly just end at the resurrection. There's a little bit after. This makes the stories that the gospel writers do include post-resurrection, I think, mean much more proportionally uh, because in this period of time, they don't say a lot, but the things they do say, I think, have a lot of significance and meaning. We will talk about uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus next week and Jesus in Revelation uh, the week after that to finish out this series. As we think about the encounters with Jesus after his death, uh, we have Matthew, Mark, and John. They record Jesus meeting with the women who go to the tomb. Uh, other than that, Matthew only records the Great Commission. That, that's all we get out of Matthew is this meeting with the women and the Great Commission. Mark and Luke record a meeting on the road. We'll talk about one of those. Uh, Luke records Jesus appearing to the disciples as a group. John has the most detail. We have appearing with the disciples in a locked room. We have the appearing in a second locked room, a second time to confront Thomas. It's unclear as you read the stories in the different gospels. Luke may be recording the same event as one of these. It's hard to tell uh, if Luke is recording the same thing or a different one. Uh, John has a lengthy encounter on the coast. There's a, there's a thing with fishing and then a meal. Uh, and so all told, perhaps, what we're told about at the end of the, the Gospels, six or seven meetings, six or seven encounters with Jesus post-resurrection. We should note first that of these six or seven, three involve food, uh, very specifically involve food. Luke 24, verse 28. They drew near to the village with, uh, to which they were going. He acted. Jesus, of course, has appeared on the road. We'll talk about this more in a minute. But there's two guys walking down the road. Jesus appears to them. He, he talks to them a bit. He acted as if he were, uh, he were going fur, fur, further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It is towards evening. The day is far gone. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Verse 40 of the same chapter, when he had said this, he, uh, this is a different encounter. He showed them his hands and his feet, and while they, were, uh, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said, have you have anything to eat? And it's sort of weird. He appears to them. He's like, here, look at my hands and my side. You know, he's showing them the marks in his feet. Like, look at my feet. And then they're sort of, oh, this is so amazing. Do you have anything to eat? I'm hungry. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. John 21, verse 12. This whole encounter is, is centered around breakfast on the, on the shore. They go and get fish, and they bring it back. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. It's, it's interesting, the proportion. Again, we're thinking about proportions here. Let's say seven. Seven different encounters with Jesus recorded in the Gospels post-resurrection. Almost half of them specifically have to do with food of some way or another. And I think it seems strange to us maybe in, in hindsight. At the time of writing, and, and maybe indeed today, but especially at the time of writing, the concern with food has a very significant purpose. Most likely, this is designed to combat this false idea that had arisen that Jesus did not physically rise from the dead. 
And this had been circulating in, toward the latter part of the first century uh, in, in the church. And of course, this is something that sort of floats around as a heresy that is in the next few hundred years surrounding the, the formation of, of different ideas and false teachings. And so here at the end of the Gospels, making sure people know, hey, Jesus was able to eat. You know, whatever form his body took, whatever form the resurrection had, and, and again, we could get into some deep theological questions about the resurrection body, but for the purposes here, he rose physically. It's not just his spirit that just shows up. He is there physically eating food with them. It's a significant detail. Of course, symbolically, I think there's a little bit more to this symbolically. One of the things that, we that I find to be interesting about these encounters, often... They don't know who he is at first. He shows up. He's with them. They're, they're like, who is this guy? But then as soon as they share food, that's when it becomes obvious. Oh, this is Jesus. Luke 24, 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Somehow the act of eating, the physical act of eating was spiritually significant. And of course, I don't think it's a coincidence. We think about henceforth and forevermore what we're doing on the first day of the week, the phrase that's used in the first century in, in Acts, breaking of bread. Now, again, Jesus is not physically here with us, but he is known to us in the breaking of bread. As we participate and share in this week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we are entering into a meal with him, sharing in his resurrection and approaching his throne of grace, as we've been talking about in our Sunday morning study, remembering his death, burial, and resurrection, that it happened physically, that he came back from the dead to defeat sin, to defeat death, and we're participating in that as we break bread. The second thing we should note about these encounters, the care and concern that Jesus has for the disciples' belief, or lack thereof, as, of course, he's died, and then there's a, a sadness and a sorrow and a despair. And as he's encountering them in these various circumstances, his preeminent concern, while he does have the food, that's an important point, his preeminent concern is their belief. Are they, do they believe in what they have seen, what has happened here? Mark chapter 16, verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to the two of them as they were walking into the country. But they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Even, even he appears to some of them. They go and tell. Even the women. We, we see this encounter recorded in most of the Gospels. The women at the tomb. Uh, Jesus appears to them and, and tells them, go back and tell the, what you've seen. And they don't believe. Some of them go to the tomb to make sure. They race to the tomb. But even with this eyewitness testimony, there's doubt. There's disbelief. Luke 24, verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, this is Jesus, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He calls them foolish. Why? Two reasons. We'll talk about this more. They didn't believe the eyewitness testimony and they did not believe what the prophets had said or misunderstood what the prophets had said. This was necessary. I needed to die. This was a part of the plan. And now you've seen, people have told you, I've come back, and you're slow of heart to believe. Verse 37, 
They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. This is one of the times he appears to them in a room. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it, it is not myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Again, the emphasis on the physical resurrection here. But the question at the beginning, why are you troubled? You shouldn't be troubled. I'm back. I'm back, guys. Here I am. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? John 20, verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your hand and finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him. Of course, we have this as the coda, Thomas's song, right? My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So it's important that they understand they tangibly interact with his physically resurrected body. But he knew, Jesus knew, most would not get that chance. Most, for the rest of time, the vast, vast, 99.9 .9 recurring percent of Christians would not get that chance to interact with the physically risen Lord. Which is why he says to Thomas, right? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The thing that Jesus is driving at in these few encounters that are recorded for us after the resurrection, for most people, again, the vast, vast, almost everybody after this time, belief boils down to two factors. John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace again, uh, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. First factor, testimony, eyewitness testimony. He's going to send the apostles. Why it was so important for him to appear after the resurrection to show them, I'm physically here, I physically rose, I'm eating, you can touch me. Because they're the ones that are going to tell people. You're going to tell, hey, we've seen Jesus. The second part, Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus could appear to everyone. Today, he could do that. And let's be clear, he will. He will do that. Now, maybe not all of us here. We'll, we might die before that. But he will return, and everybody will see. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. That's going to happen. He could do it, just appear to us now in this room. But he has decided, and he desires, it's evident in these encounters, that people have faith based on testimony and prophecy. That we believe the eyewitness accounts. We believe what we've been told. We believe the report of them who heard, them who saw. And we understand from the scriptures. This was the guy. This is why it had to happen. This is what it meant. This is what our faith is based on. The testimony of those who saw that he sent. And the understanding we have in scripture of who he was and what it meant. And that's going to be the case until he returns. This is how we encourage and convince and persuade others to believe in the risen Lord. And so finally, we should spend some time with Jesus and Peter in John chapter 21. This will be uh, where we spend the rest of our time. John 21 verse 15. This is, of course, they've, they've gone out and catch, they've caught some fish. That was obviously a miraculous sign of Jesus. They come back. He says, you know, eat, have this breakfast with me. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, more than these, that's the rest of the people that are there, right? He's, they've got a number of disciples there. Some of them went out to fish. They've come back. Okay, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the emphasis is interesting. You could go a couple of ways with this. 
Do you love me more than, and I think this is the intent that Jesus has here, right? Do you love me more than you love these guys? Right? These are your friends. You've been with them three years. You're going to keep being with them. And significantly, Jesus is leaving. He knows that. Simon, do you love me more than you love these other guys? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. There's an interesting uh, translation note here in the difference between agape and phileo. Jesus using the agape, do you love me more than Jesus? Peter responding with phileo, yeah, I love you. You're like a brother to me. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The transition here, Jesus stops asking, do you agape love me? To transition to phileo, do you phileo love me? This lesser form. And Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to them, you Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Of course, there is cause for doubt. Not that Jesus would doubt. He knows all things. But we understand in the story, this is coming off the heels of Peter's denial. I don't know you. I don't know that guy. Everybody's asking him around the fire. I don't know that dude. And so we can understand there might be some cause for concern here. Peter, do you love me? You, you, you just fled and left. You denied to people that you knew me. You would not claim to know me. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says three times. Okay, that love comes with some attachments. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. I'm sending you, he said to the apostles. Peter, here a specific instruction. Your love for me is, is, is accompanied by responsibility. The responsibility is you're going to, as you love me, love others. You're going to let your love for me lead you to feed these sheep, these poor defenseless creatures. Tell them about me. Tell them about what you've seen. Tell them the truth. Tell them what they need to know. Make sure that they are spiritually nourished and fed. And of course, coming off the heels of the betrayal, prove it, Peter, that you love me. Show it that you love me. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, do you love me? Okay, if you love me, show it. And if you love me, know that love is going to lead you into persecution. Ultimately martyrdom, right? You're going to be killed you will be imprisoned. You will not be in charge of your own body. That is the cost of loving me. Follow me. And we might ask the same of us, right? Jesus continually asking each one of us, do you love me? He asks again, do you love me? He asks the third time, do you love me? Hopefully we can say yes, but saying yes is accompanied by prove it. Let that love affect how you live. And even if that love leads you into persecution and suffering, continue to follow him. Verse 20, 
Peter, taunted, uh, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This is, uh, this is John, the one who had leaned back against him in supper. Uh, said, Lord, uh, this is the one... Uh, Let's just start this over. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? Okay, what about this man? Okay, I am going to be led into this persecution. I'm going to die at the hands of others. I'm going to be martyred. Well, what about this guy? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he would not die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, of course, this is the writer, John, who is writing this. John, including this little detail uh, to make sure that the reader knows, hey, Jesus didn't say I'm going to live forever, right? You may have interpreted it that way, but I am going to die. What's the main point here? The point is, who cares what other people are doing? Who cares what Jesus' job is for other people? You follow Jesus. You do the best you can. You serve him. Don't care so much about other people, about what other people are doing and how they're following and how they're serving. Make sure that you're following the way that you should. Jesus spent most of his time after the resurrection making sure that the disciples knew the story was, was not over. They, now, Jesus was about to leave. His part in physical existence was over, coming to an end. But they had jobs to do because Jesus was not going to appear physically to everybody. He appeared to them to give them the strength and knowledge they needed. But others were going to need to believe in the resurrection. Others who would believe based on their testimony, the job that they had to do, this is our task, isn't it? Our task as an extension of our love for Jesus, not just to do whatever we want, not just to please ourselves, not just to live the lives that we used to live, but to ensure that others hear the same testimony. Jesus has risen. People saw it, and we know it from Scripture. Jesus was willing to forgive their abandonment. Peter's specifically, we see, but Thomas's too, his doubt. Peter was willing to forgive that, He's willing to forgive you, to welcome you back with open arms. I know you've, you've sinned, you've forsaken Jesus, you've denied him maybe, you've done your own thing, you've lived in lives of rebellion. He wants you to come back. But coming back has attachments, has responsibilities. To share the news of the risen Lord, to help others find that same belief and forgiveness. That's our task. Given by the risen Jesus carried out until he comes back. He will return eventually, someday. That will happen. But when he returns the second time, all bets are off. The time of repentance is over. He will return and appear to everybody. Everyone will see. Everyone will know. Everybody will understand. But blessed are those, in the meantime, who do not see and yet still believe. And that would be us, right? Hopefully that would be those of us in this room. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. What is your task? Are you willing to follow Jesus? You haven't seen him physically in the flesh. Nobody has. That's alive today. But do you believe that he rose? And if you do, that statement that he makes to Jesus, or makes to Thomas, that statement is for you. Thomas, you've seen and you believe, but blessed are those who do not see. And still believe. Everyone I hope in this room receiving that blessing from Jesus 
and then taking that blessing and sharing that news with others. As we conclude, we offer the invitation just as I am. As we come to Jesus, we know we have sin. We know we have failings. We know we've rebelled. We know we're imperfect. We are broken. Peter was broken by his betrayal. Jesus asks him three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Okay, if you do, that's fine. Show it. Show it by living it. And that's ultimately the invitation, right, today. If we know what we need to do to be united with him, we know what he demands of us to repent, confess, to be united with him in immersion, to live faithfully. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. He's ready to accept you. Come while we stand and sing.